What's up, what's up, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Luke Mind Power Show, the best podcast for motivation, positive energy, success secrets, and powerful mindset strategies. I am your motivational speaker and coach who delivers the most extraordinary self awareness and personal development information on the planet. Buckle up, turn up that volume because it's time to evolve. Soak in the wisdom and move one step closer towards your most successful life ever. Let's go. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Luke Mind Power podcast. Uh, this is episode number 139. Uh, today, for the first time in about 40 or more episodes, I'll be interviewing a prolific special guest whose name is Dr. Martini. He's a human behavior specialist, a very well-established thought leader, author, world-renowned speaker, and founder of the Martini Institute. His purpose is to help you maximize your awareness and potential in life, and it's a super blessing to have him uh, on this podcast. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Martini. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a blessing to have you on. As I mentioned, this is uh, an interview after over about over 40 episodes uh, where I kind of chose to, you know, um, not interview any because when I first started this podcast, I was interviewing so many different people. And I thought, hang on a second, let me let me actually just exercise this muscle a little bit by doing uh, this on my own. Um, so yeah, it's great to have um, someone like yourself join us um, so that we can um, discover a little bit more about uh, our human behavior and, uh, you know, really tapping into our true potential, because I really feel uh, that a lot of us are not living in our in our potential and where we're actually living more in fear and doubt and insecurities. Um, tell us a little bit about obviously your story and um, just, you know, I guess how you started um, and how you tapped into your potential and realized that, wow, you know what, there's something greater in me and, and you, you figured it out. How did that happen? Okay. I'll do as brief one as possible here. For sure. I had learning problems as a child. Mm. I was told in first grade by my first grade teacher in front of my parents that I'm afraid your son will never be able to read, never be able to write, not be able to communicate effectively, probably not go very far in life, not amount to much. I had a speech impediment as a child, a deformed arm and leg, and I wrote backwards and spoke backwards. So that was a bit of a challenge. I only made it through the elementary school with the help of the smartest kids by asking questions and if I heard things from people, I could retain a bit, but reading and writing wasn't my thing. It just wasn't working. I ended up dropping out of school at a young age. I left home at 13 and uh, became a street kid and um, picked up surfing. So I ended up uh, hitchhiking at 14 from Houston, Texas to California and down into Mexico. At 15, I made it over to Hawaii. And I wanted to ride big waves because I wasn't, I never, I never finished high school. So I just did surfing. And there I almost uh, died at 17, almost 18 years old. Uh, and in the recovery of that, I was led to a health food store and then a yoga class where I met a teacher named Paul C. Bragg who one night and one hour impacted me to such a degree 
and made me believe after listening to him speak that maybe, just maybe, I could overcome my learning problems and someday become intelligent and learn how to read and write properly. And that was the that was a massive turning point in my life. Because I never, I just assumed I was going to make surfboards, I was going to live in the North Shore, forget school and education stuff. But that night I had an epiphany, I guess. And I started on a new journey. I eventually flew back to LA, hitchhiked back to Texas, took a GED, miraculously passed that thing by guessing, and then tried to go back to school and failed again, almost gave up. And then something my mother said to me after failing a class, she said, no matter what you do, whether you become an educated and knowledgeable or whether you ride big waves again or return to the streets, just want to let you know your father and I are going to love you no matter what. And that gave me some sort of determination that I'm, I, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to learn how to read. I was going to learn how to write properly, spell properly, speak properly. I started reading a dictionary and started, we, we tested me on 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school. And I never stopped. And I accumulated, you know, literally thousands of words over time and end up becoming uh, voluminous in reading. And I practiced the writing until I was writing properly. And I just never gave up on it. And now, this is almost 50 years later, 50 years in November, um, I've read over 3,620 something books. I've written probably 300 books. Um, I, you know, I've traveled 20 million miles at least, more than that. And I've become financially independent many times over. And um, I've communicated to billions of people across the planet with radio, television, newspaper, my podcast, you know, movies, you name it. So when somebody tells you you can't do something, that doesn't mean that's your destiny. It just means that if you decide to use that as your statement and that's the way you want to live, then that's it. But if you decide to turn it into an opportunity, you can change that. So it doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what you're going to, doesn't matter what you've been through. What matters is do you have a dream and you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. So my life changed that night I met Paul Braddock and I'm very grateful for that. And I've had a dream to do whatever I can, like he did for me to do that with as many people on the planet as possible. So that's what keeps me fueled every single day. That's powerful. Thanks for sharing that. What did, what did Paul say to you exactly that gave you that epiphany? Well, he said a number of things because he spoke for almost an hour. Well, mm. that's not true. He spoke for probably 40 minutes and then took us through a meditation at the end of the hour. But he said that we have a body, we have a mind, and we have a soul. And that the body must be directed by the mind and the mind must be guided by the soul. The soul is simply another name for the authentic self, the inspired self. Mm. And that if you let that inner authentic self guide you and don't try to be somebody you're not, be somebody you are, you'll go farther. And he said that you want to set goals for yourself, your family, your community, your city, your state, your nation, your world, and beyond for 100, 220 years. And that what you think about, what you visualize, what you affirm, what you feel, what you write about, and the actions you take will determine your destiny. And the way he said it, it was so certain. It was like, oh, 
This is like, I can do those. I could change my life. And he said, and there's something inside you that wants to do something extraordinary. And you can't bottle it up. You got to let it out. And he, uh, he had done some extraordinary things. And so he was exemplifying it. And my life shifted that night. I met him. Mm -hmm. I saw an epiphany in the meditation he guided us through. I saw epiphany, which is painted in my office today by a gentleman from Melbourne, Australia, Andrew Tischler. He painted this five by four foot painting that sits in my office when you walk in of me standing out on a balcony in front of a million people sharing a message with every iconic building from every major city in the background around the world as a message for the world. And it's titled a man on a mission with the message. So that's the image that I've been holding, you know, all these years and it was captured by Andrew, which I'm very grateful for. And I, um, I work on it every single day. I research every day. I write every day. I teach every day. One way or another, I'm doing all three of those every single day. And I'm traveling on Zoom if I'm not sailing on my ship around the world. Because mm -hmm. I live on a ship that goes around the world. Or I'm flying somewhere. So I'm, I'm fulfilling that dream. I learned if you don't fill your day with the highest priority actions and inspire you, your day is going to fill up with low priority distractions that don't. Mm -hmm. So I've delegated everything off my plate except teach, research, and write. I don't have anything else I need to do. Mm -hmm. I have people doing that. So I just teach, research, write every day as I travel. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It's very inspiring, um, Dr. Martini. I have to tell you, um, listening to you speak and share your story, I mean, as you mentioned, it's, it's 50, nearly 50 years. Um, it's like I'm speaking to my future self, which, uh, you know, for me, um, I have my own visions and missions and, and dreams and um, and and for many years, you know, I lived in in a really fearful, insecure. I'm not enough. I can't do this. I'm not smart enough. I'm not. I wasn't good at school. I I didn't like it. I couldn't learn. All the, this that kind of dialogue, you know. Um. So so listening to your story is really amazing, and I'm sure that there's many people listening that you know also feel the same way. Now you talk about the soul, um, and you talk about that being your you know most authentic um you know self right that's that's the truth right there uh why do you why why are we so disconnected from our soul because obviously i know very well that you know a lot of us are living in the mind which is very negative or because of pain trauma negative experiences negative environment um the mind has been manipulated has been has a virus in it basically um, and I believe that's the disconnection from people working from their spirit or from their heart. Um, what's your explanation as to why people are not, you know, really living from their, their truth, their authenticity? Can I develop that or did you Absolutely. want to work that Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Every human being, regardless of gender, spectrum, age or culture lives moment by moment with a set of priorities and values, things that are most to least important in life. And this structure of values or value structure or hierarchy of values is fingerprint specific to them. No two people have the same set of values. Whatever is highest on that list of values, they are spontaneously inspired from within to act upon and fulfill. 
and it's the most fulfilling thing they can do. Aristotle called this highest value the telos, the end in mind. And the study of that was so important, teleology, which is a study of meaning and purpose, that he made a whole study of just how important it is to be focused on what a priori is, a priority. If we fill our day with the very highest priority thing that is most deeply meaningful to us, we excel because we spontaneously, effectively and efficiently act on it. And it's the most fulfilling. The moment we do, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain, the medial prefrontal cortex, the executive center, and it governs the amygdala from distractions, from impulses and instincts, from things we admire to things we despise, to things we seek, to things we avoid, extrinsically. Now, if we go and try to live in lower values, progressively lower and lower, the more we go into lower values, the more the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the amygdala and the hindbrain functions. Survival. So we can live by thrival if we live by highest priority, or live in survival if we live by lower priorities. And the survival mechanism is avoiding predator and seeking prey. And it judges and subjectively biases and distorts its reality as a way of surviving because it needs to distort prey or predator in order to capture the prey or the predator by accentuating it and making it way more than it actually is and generalizing it. So whenever we meet somebody that we give a false attribution bias and exaggerate what they've accomplished and exaggerate who they are and minimize ourselves to them, values automatically go from whoever has the most power to least power in society. So the second we put something on a pedestal, we will inject their values into our life, cloud the clarity of our own highest value and distract ourselves and end up trying to multitask instead of being focused on what's really most meaningful. And the second we also see something that represents predator that we resent and look down on people, we'll project our values onto them and try to get them to live in our values. And anytime we try to get others to live in our values or try to live in other people's values, we have futility, anticipate our energy. And most people are doing that. They're feeling unfulfilled. They're not confident. They're shrinking their space and time horizons. They're living for immediate gratification instead of long-term vision. And they subordinate and brain offload decisions to outside authorities, cloud it further into a vicious cycle, lose track of what they feel their mission is, and try to fit in instead of stand out. And then they try to be second at being somebody else instead of first being their own. And as Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. And as Einstein said, if you're a cat trying to swim like a fish, you're going to beat yourself up. So self-depreciation is a compensation from subordination to outer people's, outer authorities of people and shrinking ourselves, exaggerating others and assuming they know something we don't and not honoring our magnificence within and living by priority within. And that's the most common thing that throws people into a tailspin, a self-depreciation, a survival mentality, a quiet life of desperation instead of a life of inspiration. Yeah, I like that. A quiet life of desperation instead of a life of inspiration. That's powerful stuff, Dr. Martini. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to digest what you just said, which is powerful. And I'm just, I'm, I'm already in my mind. I was like, I'm going to listen to this podcast again um, so I can, I can listen to what you just said. Um, that's amazing. Um, so, you know, the one thing that I share 
and I talk about a lot is, is self-love and something that I believe in. I, I tell you, that's something that definitely has saved me and that has brought me home to myself because I feel that I was very disconnected um, from my truth and from who I really was. Um, and again, it, it, it also allowed me to tap into my potential. Um, and, I, and I say that the most important relationship is the relationship with yourself. Um, do you believe that that's something that is missing in people's lives is their relationship with themselves? And the lack of that is the reason why we're so good at being people pleasers. We're so good at giving to others and serving others. And we've been also taught from society or culture or religion that being, you know, full of yourself or taking care of you first is, is a selfish act. What are your thoughts on that? Yes. Anytime you exaggerate somebody else and minimize you, and you're too humble to admit what you see in them inside you, you're going to play small. And because of the way the values are, they get inculcated and ingested by you, their values, and you try to live theirs. And you sacrifice. Just like if you infatuate with somebody, a new girlfriend or boyfriend, mm. the first few weeks, you're going to find yourself doing stuff you don't normally do mm -hmm. to try to fit into their life for fear of re rejection and loss of them. And you're going to find yourself doing weird stuff that you would never do until you build up enough resentment and say, I want my life back. And then you want to be authentic. So anytime you have to not be yourself in order to be in a relationship because you're infatuated, then you're on, you're in the underdog position. You don't have a match. And that's a symptom as the Buddha said, when you have somebody, it's a match, you get to be yourself. Now, anytime you minimize yourself to somebody and you go into shame or minimization, or anytime you exaggerate yourself, somebody look down on them, with resentment. You're not your authentic self. You're only your authentic self when you have equanimity within yourself. You're not too proud or too humble. And equity between you and others, where you're not infatuated or resentful. And what you have is love. And the moment you love somebody else as a reflection of you, and you're not too proud or too humble to admit what you see in them inside you, you get to love yourself. People say, I want to be loved for who I am. But if you're not being who you are, how can you be loved for who you are? It starts with you being who you are. But that can't occur whenever you judge somebody. And Empedocles, 2,600 years ago, wrote about this. Because he said that there's love and strife. Strife being like judgment. And when people live in judgment, they live in the terrestrial world, the world of trial. And they're dense. And they feel the world's on top of them. And they're underneath in the underworlds. The world of hell, if you will. And this impacted even Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle and others that led into Christian constructs. But anytime you're living in a state of equanimity, a state of harmony with somebody else, and you open your heart and love, you're not in the underworld, you're in the overworld, the broader overview, where it's neither good nor evil. Down below, it's either good or evil. Above, it's neither good or evil. You're just seeing things as whole. See, if you're infatuated with somebody, you're conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides. If you're resentful to somebody, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides. When you love somebody, you're fully conscious of both sides and know that both are, the, are essential. There's no one-sided individual. When you can love both sides and you don't put them above or below you, you put them in your heart, you have reflective awareness and true intimacy where there's no distinction between you and them. The seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same. The moment you do, self-love is automatic. And when we live by our highest values, we're most objective and reasonable where that occurs. 
But when we try to live by lower values and we activate the amygdala, the amygdala skews things with the subjective bias and false attribution biases and causal virus of, you know, biases. And we get caught in the whirly gurg, as the Buddhist says, of samsara of the causality. We blame. Epictetus says, first we blame others, then we blame ourselves, then we realize finally at transcendence, we have nothing to blame. When we realize there's nothing to blame, there's something to be appreciative of and see things from a balanced perspective. We have self-love and that is our maximum potential. But we can't have self-love without also loving others. As Schopenhauer says, we become our true self to the degree that we make everyone else ourselves. And every time we love another part of another individual, we get to love another part within ourselves. I think it was Romans 2.1 that said that, you know, what we see in others that we resent or admire is nothing more than a reflection of the things we're ashamed of or proud of in ourselves. And we're reacting to them with avoidance or seek because it's reminding us of the things that we're either disowning or owning. So everything is a reflection. And when we finally actually realize that reflection, we realize we want to love them because we want to love ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. I love that. It's, it's, and I feel it's true as well. I, I know myself um, with, you know, judging and, and, um, and realizing that, yeah, it's, it's, it is a reflection of yourself because I mean, it's coming from you, you know, I mean, that's, that's the, that's you're the, the one audience. evaluating. Exactly. You're projecting your evaluations and values onto people. And that's, and no two people have the same values. Yeah. You don't ever make a mistake in your life until you compare your actions to somebody else's values. You never make a mistake in your own values. You only make a mistake when you think you're doing something that doesn't match somebody else's. And you only think they make a mistake when you're expecting them to live in your values. When they live in their values, they're living according to what they believe will give them the greatest advantage or disadvantage at any moment in time according to what they value. But the second you expect them to do anything but that, you're going to think they're making a mistake. And that's your lesson about it. They only live in their values. They don't live in yours. Very true. Very powerful. Love that. It's amazing. Um, Dr. Demartini, I uh, read part of a book. I'm not a massive reader. Maybe in the future I will be, but at the moment I, I haven't really connected to books as much. I'm more into, you know, watching um, motivational YouTube videos and, um, and listening to, to podcasts that inspire me a lot. That's, that's where I learned a lot um, of my work. Um, but I did by chance uh, read a little bit about a, a book called The Blank Slate by Steven Pinker. Not sure if you've heard of it. Um, have you heard of it? I've heard of Steven Pinker. I haven't read his book. So it's based off the understanding and appreciation of the fact that, um, yes, when you're born, um, you know, you, your mind is, you know, blank, but you're still possibly born with, or he believes that, you know, it, you're born with, you know, generational um, DNA, um, from your past and you know you also have different you know everyone's born with different sort of gifts and not everybody is the same you don't just evolve because of your environment um, there's still something deeper um, within your mind um, and you know when I was actually understanding and appreciating that um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the development of the mind and um, you know, you tapping into your, your creative gifts, if you've been raised in a really unhealthy environment, for example, um, how much power do we really have to override everything, for example, even if, let's say you're in your 40s, and so far in your life, things have just not gone well. 
Um, what's your belief on that? Well, it's, there's a bunch of questions there, so let me see if I can address them. Um, first of all, a Nobel Prize was given over a about a century ago, just less than a century, pardon me, uh, for the idea of the blank slate. But they've now realized that that's not the fact. That's been updated. We now know that in the early months of gestation, uh, as sensory organs are developing, we are already perceiving, and um, way before birth, many data, sounds, even sights. And, and uh, so we're not blank slates. And so we have things we're actually experiencing from very early stages. During organogenesis, which starts after the gastralization phase in embryology, there, as these organs are starting to form, there are phases in which they're already starting to pick up information. Cells themselves have cell receptors on it, picking up information, tactile information, and chemist, the chemo sensation. And we now know that when babies are at very young ages, already gather things, and you can read to them in the, in the womb months before they're born, and they are picking information up and sounds. Under ultrasound, we can watch this. So the blank slate is outdated. That was what was believed by a Nobel Prize winner, and it's been overruled. The idea of a formal years has also been updated, because they believe the first six or seven years of life is where most of the learning was, prodigious learning. And now they realize that that can continue on if they have something deeply meaningful and to be extended. They now know also that there's a thing called epigenetics, which during uh, embryology, as a single cell, the zygote, the male and female haploids join together to make a diploid zygote, it starts to divide by mitosis. And even though the genes are relatively the same all the way through, there's epigenetic signal molecules that cause changes in differentiation of the cells along the journey. And those signal molecules tag the cell genomes to cause it to express different proteins to make different types of cells, skin cells, bone cells, et cetera. And they've now traced it back. They used to think it was just one or two, then they went to four and five. We're now back to 14 generations of emotionally charged events in people's lives, distresses that they're facing. Epigenetically tagged the germline, which is the actual germ cells in the body, not the somatic cells, and those can be carried on through generation after generation. And if they're not dissolved, they can carry on. And we'll have impulses and instincts in our own development carried on from multiple generations, causing us to react to things. So we've got epigenetic things that are multi-generational. Those are facts. We've got gestational development and experiences that we're picking up on that add more epigenetic alterations. And then from the time of born, we're born, we have further ones. Now, some believe that it's just the environment. Skinner was said it's just the environment, it's a zeitgeist. Others believe, no, it's your nurturing that makes a difference. There's arguments on both sides. Some just accept 50-50. But I'm now certain, because I've been working with personal development for over 50 years, uh, I can take anything you've been through, doesn't matter what it is, and I can transform your perception of that event by changing the associations you make with it and change the trajectory of your behavior, your perception, decisions, and actions from that event, no matter when it was. If it's conscious, we can alter it. And we can even take unconscious information, make it conscious so we can alter it. 
So we're not set in stone. I've had people that have been, I'll, I'll give you an example. We had a boy that was um, a, left when he was born by his Indian mother in Mumbai and they came from a slum. Now the boy grew up eventually in an orphanage and a foster and was taken by a foster family. He believed that he was abandoned. He believed he was no good. He believed that he was unworthy and he was living out that probability. And the foster person loved him and showed affection towards him and tried everything they could, but no matter what, that was the program inside. I sat with him one hour. I regressed him back to the birth and he discovered something at the birth he had no idea he knew, except way down inside. When he opened his eyes, sitting in a little room covered in glass, he opened his eyes and saw his mother and father, and the father trying to grab the mother away because the mother didn't want to leave. But the mother believed that that child was special and believed he deserved a better life than they could offer him in the slum. They didn't give him away because of rejection. They gave him away because he was special. Now, the moment he saw that in a regression to saw that, he felt loved by his mother, not rejected, special, and felt he wants to do something extraordinary and find his mother and show him that. Now, in one hour, the trajectory of that child's life changed. The foster mother just was mind blown. He was now focused. He wanted to go to school. He wanted to do something amazing in his life because his, his, his perception changed. My perception changed when I was a teenager also, the night I met Paul Bragg, and my trajectory changed. So I don't ever want to just explain the world on the outside. Epictetus said in one of his writings, first in our journey of personal development, we blame things on the outside. And we live in this causal world that's falsely attributed to outside causes as the cause of our pains and pleasures. Then we go inside and we start blaming ourselves for our perceptions of it. And then we get to a point where there's nothing to blame because we finally realize that no matter what's happened in life, how do we use it to the greatest potential? How is whatever's happened in our life helping us fulfill what's most deeply is meaningful? And in the quality of our life space and the quality of the questions we're asking, if we ask amazing questions, how specifically is whatever's happened, how's it helping me fulfill what's most deeply meaningful? And if you answer that and answer it again and keep answering that, you will take everything that's happened in your life and turn it into fuel instead of friction. So I don't wanna say that we're victims of history because I don't find that to be true. We can be masters of destiny but we have to make that decision and start to have a difference in perception. William James, the secondary father of modern psychology, said the greatest discovery of his generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their perceptions and attitudes of mind. So the whole reason we have a personal development field is because we have the capacity to transform our lives. Yeah, so we're changing, basically, the past, which is... Changing our perception of the past. Yeah. 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 So I want to share with you, Dr. Demartini, um, something that I went through when, when I was, when I was roughly around 14, 13 or something like that. So my, my story came from, yeah, as I mentioned, a lot of insecurity, um, very, um, I was very, very um, uh, physically aware or just really unhappy 
with my physical appearance. So uh, one of the first realizations that I had of that, I mean, I could obviously observe that I was very, very skinny, very lanky, you know, no matter how much food I ate, I, I never put on weight. Um, and I remember this one moment with my mum when I was asking her if I want, if I could play soccer. Um, and she said, no, Luke, you can't because you're too skinny. And if you go on the field, the kids will break your bones. And that stuck with me like most of my, like all my life and, and gave me the, the truth, right? Because obviously, you know, I'm looking up to my mom. She's the person I love and the person that's taking care of me most. Um, so when that happened to me, it just gave me a heightened appreciation of, well, hmm, something wrong with me then, you know, I'm not good enough. Um, and I've since had a, you know, a fair amount of healing with my mother, which is amazing because I've shared this with her. Um, but that, and then more bullying and being called different names and stuff like that, again, continuously programmed me. And with the lack of confidence that I had in myself, I allowed that to become my truth. So I held on to that story. And that became my narrative. That became the conversation in my head that that was who I was. You know, and I had to um, unlearn that. You know, just like you said, change your perception. Um, instead of complaining or saying that this is the reason why I can't, you know, this is the reason now why I do what I do, <laughs> right? Um, so is that kind of a similar, um, you know, it's that, for, from, for me, it was a lot of rejection. It was, it was a lot of being, you know, feeling like I wasn't good enough. It was everybody else's opinion on me, me taking that and saying, yeah, that, that's who I am. You know, so I'm going to shrink myself as we, as we talked about at the beginning of the interview. Well, um, the, the philosopher once stated that I'd rather have the whole world against me than my own soul. Because when the soul says that, then you're, you're going to live that. But, what people say, let them say. Mm. Wadsworth said, let them say it. That's part of life. If you look very carefully, whenever somebody's criticizing you, it's because you're challenging their values or puffed up. And whenever they're supporting you, it's because you're supporting their values and humble. If I walk in a room in a group of people, doesn't matter what size, and I walk in there and somebody says, Dr. Martini." you're amazing. And they start praising me. And I go in there and I'm really humble. And I said, well, thank you. But I might talk to my girlfriend. She has a completely different view of that. And I really put myself down lower than what they imagined. They're going to keep raising me up. They're going to keep saying things. They're going to keep going, oh. But if I walk in the room, because anytime I'm below what they believe I am, they're going to lift me up. But if I walk in a room and they said, oh, you're, you're amazing. And I go, you finally figured it out. I'm more friggin' amazing than you can even comprehend. Your small mind can't comprehend how really amazing I am. Mm. I'm more amazing than any of you combined. What will they do? Shrink themselves. They'll, they'll immediately knock me down and criticize me, bring me back down, arrogant. Mm. Because the tall poppy syndrome and the, yeah. the doll. Yeah. So the saying. second you go above what people think, they bring you down. And the saying you go below what they think, they lift you up. And people are addicted to being lifted up. And they're frightened of being put down. But both of those are putting you into your authentic self. 
So you need criticism just as much as you need praise. And people addicted to praise who puff themselves up and get addicted to their pride automatically are going to have to have criticism to get them back into humbleness and back into authenticity. We're not here to be puffed up. We're here to be ourselves. So it's if we have an understanding of the nature of human behavior, we don't attach to those perceptions. We see those perceptions on the way because they're helping us be authentic. So, so in that example that you just shared, someone says to you, you're, you're amazing. Um, one thing that I've learned um, through a, a powerful um, coach of mine, um, Lisa Nichols, is you know, in, one thing that we struggle with, a lot of us, is, is receiving compliments. Um, and the one thing that I learned um, from working with Lisa Nichols is that when someone gives you a compliment, um, instead of rejecting it, rejection, rejecting it or um, being afraid of it, um, you say a statement like, I receive that. So that you're actually receiving the energy. A lot of us are pushing it away by making excuses as to why we're not amazing. Now, what I do is I just say thank you for projecting what you have inside. Yeah. Because you cannot see that in me mm. unless that's you. That's right. And I turn it around and I acknowledge it within me and I acknowledge it within them. And that way I don't get puffed up by it. I just get mm. appreciative of it. There's a difference. Yeah. Well, that's why, that's why I always say, you know, you always project uh, to the outside what you have within yourself. You, you can't give what you don't have. As Aristotle said, everything is a reflection that the projection you make of it, you, your interpretation of it is you. Absolutely. Powerful stuff. Love it. Um, Dr. Demartini, um, gratitude is something that I practice with my clients um, every week because I'm very aware of the mind and the mind is either in the future or in the past, or, you know, we're not content with what we've achieved so far in our life, or, you know, we're always looking to gain more or, you know, wishing that we were better or we had more money or we had that car or that house or whatever it is. Um, how has gratitude played a part in your success and why is it so important to, to bring yourself back to the present moment and, you know, to recognize what it is that you have and even your achievements um, in the here and now. I was born on Thanksgiving Day. And when I was four years old, my mom was putting me to bed and she said, son, make sure you count your blessings. Those that are grateful for what they have receive more to be grateful for. The executive center in the forebrain, which is activated when you live by your highest priority, is also called the gratitude center because that's where you're most resiliently able to see that no matter what happens, it's actually feedback to help you fulfill what's meaningful. Now I keep a daily gratitude journal. I call it the had the opportunity today. It's 33 volumes. Some of my volumes are 900 pages. So that'll tell you how much I've been writing this and how many years I've been doing. So I'm a firm believer in documenting every little action Believe it or not, I've already typed yours in. You're already in there. The opportunity to be interviewed by you. So I document daily each thing that happens that I'm grateful for, challenges or whatever. I was told by a, a very interesting man who was 35 years old, he had six PhDs, very bright guy, Indian man, mystic. And he said, 
do not ever go to bed until you can look through the day and see nothing but through the eyes of gratitude. If there's anything in that day that you're not grateful for, go back and look at it again and reframe it. Go find out how it served you. And so that was at 23 when he was encouraging me to do that. I was already into a gratitude process at that time, but he tightened it up. And so I don't go to bed without that exercise because I like to sleep clearly, soundly. And gratitude is the signal to noise ratio in the brain that cleans up the signal to noise ratio and allows you to get the signal of the soul to come through, which is thank you and love. The noise is all the infatuation resentments and all the judgments. And that's stored in all the facilitation and inhibitions and all the neurotransmitters and causes the neurochemistries to go in balance. But the second you go into grace, they all come into homeostasis. There's an amazing homeostatic mechanism in the brain interceptively for each of the transmitters and hormones in the brain. And they're now recently more aware of how this works. There's literally thousands of these chemistries that are actually brought into homeostasis. To the degree that they're in homeostasis, there's no noise in the brain. There's what they call spontaneous potentials, not evoked potentials. And the brain is actually illuminated with biophotons. So we literally have enlightenment of the brain to the degree that we're grateful and enlightened about our reality. So gratitude is the key that opens up the gateway of the heart. Now, the, what's interesting is in the very forebrain, the medieval prefrontal cortex, it also wraps around underneath and forward under the brain and stops at what they call the lamina terminalis. And both sides of the, the hemispheres on the medial prefrontal cortex, they're connected by the corpus callosum to create the most integrative, unified brain understanding, which is what love and gratitude is. It's an integration state. It's the synthesis and synchronicity of compromise opposites. Judgment is a separation of opposites, as Empedocles said. It's a synthesis. So the moment we do that, this area of the brain stops right in front of the hypothalamus, which governs the autonomics, which change physiology and brings homeostasis. Uh, the heart rate variability is maximized. And right above the suprachiasmic nucleus, which takes care of all biorhythms and all the cells to make sure that the day and night cycles are balanced and literally changes neurochemistry. So it's so crucial to prioritize our life live by the most meaningful and purposeful thing we can, which we maximize our gratitude, activate our executive center, have self-governance, and have a mastery of destiny instead of a, you might say, a victim of history mentality. So gratitude is the key that opens the gateway of the heart. And when you do that, when the autonomics come into balance, the intercardiac network that runs the heart intrinsically comes into a perfect synthesis and the sinoatrial node opens the heart and allows the most perfect conduction. And the field around it opens and we literally feel an open heart. But if we don't, and we judge and we lopside things and we activate the amygdala, the amygdala lateralizes the autonomics and causes the enteric brain down below to be imbalanced. And the enteric brain is in the duodenum and the, from the duodenum to the mouth is infatuation. And from the duodenum to the anus is resentment. That's why when we are infatuated with somebody, we call them sweetheart because we want our tongue to get on them. And when we are resentful, we call them a-hole, if you will. So we, we literally have lateralization of perception and we judge and we're in our gut and our gut impulses and instincts run our life like an animal. So we're either an angel or an animal. 
If we live by priority, we activate our angelic mind, which is the guardian angel, this, which is the, the prefrontal cortex, the executive center, or we're down in our animal level and we're not appreciating life and we're trying to avoid something and, and, and seek something. The Buddha says the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So in that amygdala, we're kind of trying to run away from something and seek something. And that's a futility state. And those are the passions of the animal instead of the mission of the angel. Dr. Demartini, that's probably the most extraordinary explanation of understanding gratitude that I've ever heard in my life. And honestly, it's such a blessing to be speaking with you right now. It's amazing. Um, I was all I was thinking was like, do you have a course on this that we could that we have we could have access to that we could learn more about the power of the appreciation of the processing of the mind and and the whole human system um, for the when you start to actually practice gratitude like that's you know that's amazing that's that's great thank you so much well, for the, the the you asked about a course yeah i've been teaching a course for about 33 and a quarter years now called the breakthrough experience mm. and i've done it 1147 times and i've done it in 60 no 70 something countries now and um yeah, I, it's one of the most inspiring things I get to do is to help people transform whatever they perceived in their way to on mm, the way mm. and take whatever they have got as baggage and make it fuel and to transform the apparent chaos and see the hidden order. It's amazing. That's powerful stuff. Love it. And we'll share, we'll share more information um, about where people can find you and, and what they can access um, through your platform. Um, but um, I wanted to ask you specifically as well, doctor, um, what, what are you a doctor of exactly? Cause I'm sure people are listening and like, you know, hearing me call you Dr. Martini. but um, uh, what are you, what, what gives you that, um, that name? That's a good question. I hope you don't mind if I develop that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. When, uh... When I met Paul Bragg, he was a naturopath and was into nutrition. And that had a bit of an influence on me, for sure. And then when I went back to school, I uh, knew I wanted to be involved in health also. I wanted to be a teacher, healer, and philosopher. And I was going pre-med in school. And by then, I was in the pre-med honor society. I had the top grades. And I had a Dr. Kaminsky, who was the head of that. And... Um, she asked me, what medical school do you want recommendation to go to? You've got the top grades, you're an honor student, you can get anywhere you want to go. And it just so happened that I had read a book called The Chiropractic Story by Marcus Bach prior to that. And I really didn't believe we had an excess of organs and a deficiency of drugs in people. I really believed that we had a power within us to transform physiology. And I was interested in what we could do from within more so than what we can do to prevent things from without. And so I told her I wanted to go to chiropractic college, not medicine. She said, that's insane. Why would you do that? And I said, because of the philosophy. I really believe I want to help people empower their lives and give them their power back and not depend on a drug or have organs removed. I, I, I don't believe that it's the bugs out there that's the cause or it's things outside as much as I believe it's an inside job. It's a perception of our world. And I'd rather be able to help educate people as a teacher to do that. So when she said she was upset about that, 
I knew I'd made the right decision. So I went on to be a chiropractor. I went to Texas Chiropractic College and I graduated there with clinical and academic honors. So I was very grateful for that. During that time, I also studied dentistry and I also went to Baylor Medical School just to compare the educational system to make sure that was going on. And what I found is that the formal education system was inadequate from what I wanted. Whatever they were expecting, I always multiplied it times 10. So if we have two texts or a text for a class, I'd read 10 to 20 texts for a class. I always had a higher standard than anything in formal education for myself. And so I, I chose that as a profession. And I'm so grateful I did because it gave a philosophical view of helping people empower their life, which is what I'm interested in. I wanna help people realize that their perception, their decisions and their actions have an impact on their physiology. I'm now convinced and certain that our physiology is a feedback mechanism to guide us to authenticity. Just a few years ago, they discovered something about the immune system they didn't know before. For years, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the immune system is considered a protective system against alien invaders, a virus, a bug, you know, rickettsia, these kind of things, parasite. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They don't have that view today. That's not the view of today. Today, they, since they now know about the microbiome and every cell and every tissue has a microbiome, they now know that it's more of the immune system is a feedback system to the brain to let the brain know what are the ratios of microorganisms throughout the body and where they're located in order to adjust and alter the autonomic nervous system and the pHs and secretions, et cetera, to keep those things in check. It's a wildlife management system. It's an ecosystem with builders, maintainers, destroyers that build and destroy our body consistently in order to recycle systems. And so now, instead of seeing that, you know, we got to get an antibiotic to get rid of that bug, we now are going, what are the bugs? What are the ratios? And almost every disease now has been now correlated with the types of microbiomes that are in the body. And so now changing those microbiomes are impacting illness. And so there's a whole new model out there which is more in line with what I've been inspired by, of giving people their power back, educating them. For instance, let's say you go out and you're distressed and you compare yourself to somebody else and you think they're amazing and you minimize yourself. And then you go into your amygdala. And then you, as a result of it, you tend to want to go and eat and you overeat and ghrelin gets heightened and leptin slows down and you get this hunger system and you overeat. And then you wake up the next morning with a puffy face, cramps, bloat, gas, indigestion, oily skin, fatigue, difficult breathing. And you go to the doctor. The doctor says, well, you need an antacid. You need an anti-flatulence. You need an anti-headache, an anti-allergesic. You need an anti-this. And it's a palliative treatment of getting rid of symptoms and not curative in any form. And where the reality is that those symptoms are not your enemy. Those symptoms are normal, healthy physiology guiding a person back to wise eating. Mm -hmm. Misinterpreted as illness, treated as disease, misleading people thinking that if you feel good, you're healthy. And then that's not the fact. The fact is that sometimes those symptoms are healthy and a perfect biological response to try to guide you on how to eat wisely, moderately, consistently with rhythm. 
So I chose chiropractic because of the philosophy and because I wanted to give people their power back and I want to educate people on applied physiology, not attack or protect from bugs or give pharmaceuticals as a pharmaceutical rep. Now I'm not saying that they don't have a place and there are places where that's absolutely essential, but that wasn't the path that I chose. I wanted to give people their power back and wanted to educate people as a doctor. And so I still to this day work on that, do that wherever I travel. Yeah, thanks for answering that. And that's, that's really uh, powerful and, uh, and also something that I learned when I was living in the Shaolin Temple in China. Um, and obviously they practice Chinese medicine there as well. But um, the one thing that the, um, the teacher would, would always say, the Shifu, um, is that you are your own best doctor you know, um, and your body's not against you. It's always working with you. And I think that's the system that's flawed in the world today well, is that. That's exactly the truth. Yeah. Your body, you know, we, I'm amazed at how there's a war against a certain disease and it's outside you mm. attacking you. I don't find that to be true. I believe that, it, that I, I've worked with a, a condition that's very common called diabetes, right? Many, many cases of this. And there's a pattern of behavior. If you take a diabetic and you try to tell them what to do, unless you can make it their decision to do it, they're not gonna, they're not gonna listen in most cases. If you take a hypoglycemic and tell them what to do, they'll tell you, they'll do exactly what you tell them. They're two different personas. The diabetic is usually more self-righteous and projects their values and expects others to live in their values and becomes bitter when they don't. The hypoglycemic, injects other people's values, tries to please people. And when they're the diabetic and they're trying to do something and they're not getting it, their sympathetic nervous system raises blood sugar and insulin goes down and glucagon goes up. And when you're on the other side and you're playing the sweet individual, your glucagon goes the other way and insulin reverses and you get the opposite effect. These are personalities as well as conditions. And I've seen, seen people take the things they're bitter about, do my Demartini method from the breakthrough experience and clear all the bitterness and take their insulin levels down to zero, unheard of, and change the alpha and beta cell functions. Mysteriously, they change their, their production. So we don't give, we don't tell people how powerful they are inside to transform their physiology. We don't, because most people don't wanna take accountability. They don't want to be responsible for the hours and effort it takes to master their life. Well, that's they want that's to the, yeah. And that's the amygdala. The amygdala is dedicated to immediate gratification and the executive center's long-term vision. And people that have long-term vision want to master life like Gladwell and put in the 10,000 hours to master their life. Most people want a quick fix. And so therefore medicine and that palliative you know, approach, external approach has a place. So I'm not against it. I just would rather select the people and educate the people who are willing and ready to master their lives. Yeah, that's it. And, and you can't, I mean, um, you know, like they say, you can, you can lead a, a horse to the water, but you can't make him eat it or drink it, you know? Um, and there's a famous quote that Les Brown says all the time. And he says that, you know, if you do what is easy, your life will be hard. And if you exactly. do what is hard, your life will be easy. And it's the, the hard, the, the accountability, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's being consistent and, and doing something over and over and over again 
um, to master yourself. If you pursue challenges that inspire you, you'll develop youth stress and wellness. If you try to avoid challenges that despire you, you'll create distress and illness. So you might as well pick your challenges. Because if you don't, if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, it's going to fill up with low priority distractions that don't. If you don't pick the challenges that inspire you, it's going to fill up with challenges that don't. It's your way. You, but you're not going to avoid the challenges because the challenges are necessary for your mastery. They're what causes you innovation, genius, creativity, and original, creating original ideas that serve people. They're the ones that literally help the hormesis of the immune system. So there, there's no doubt that you, you can transform your life by transforming your perception, decisions, and actions. Mm, absolutely. So Dr. Demartini, um, I know we're, we're going to finish up shortly, um, but uh, you know, coming from where you came from, from you know, um, not being very good at school and coming from that place of, you know, um, you know, some people call it dyslexia or, you know, not, not being good at studying or stuff like that. And now you've completely turned that around. And um, what does it feel like? Because I know like where I came from and, you know, now that you've, you've just invested so much time into yourself, um, into becoming who you've become, um, how does that feel? Because I know we function off feelings and emotions um, and everyone's looking for that happy happiness and, and that, that, you know, that joy. Um, are you living in that state every day now? No, I, I don't pursue joy or happiness. In fact, I wrote a little booklet called um, I gave up happiness. It made me too sad. Uh, Aristotle described a hedonistic happiness, which is a superficial happiness, and a deeply meaningful state called eudaimonia. And eudaimonia was a, the pursuit of well-being and wholeness and integration. Because I like to think of it this way. I want you to imagine a magnet here, positive, negative pole. Mm -hmm. And I want you to imagine I'm going to give you this magnet, and you have it in front of you. And now I'm going to offer you $1 billion US dollars if you can give me the positive pull of that magnet by itself without the negative pull. Now, if you're ignorant and don't know Maxwell's equation, you'll cut it in half and quickly give me the positive pull and say, all right, where's my billion? And then I'll point out to you that you cut the magnet in half and now you have a positive negative and a positive negative, two magnets. Mm. I go, oh, I didn't do it fast enough. Let me do it faster. Chop it again. And so now you're going to chop it and chop it and chop it and chop it, pursuing that which is unavailable and trying to avoid that which is unavoidable. And this is a source of human suffering. So you're trying to get a positive pull of a magnet without the negative pull. And as long as there's even an atom left, there's a dipole moment in the, in the, the atoms of this magnet that's been magnetized. So people do that. They try to get rid of half of themselves and only get one side of themselves. And they pursue that which is unavailable and try to avoid that which is unavoidable and suffer because they don't get rid of it. So I gave it up at age 30 after doing a massive experiment on the illusions of positive and negative thinking. And I haven't focused back on that for 37 years, almost 38 years, because I'll be 68 soon. So I don't pursue happiness or joy or one-sidedness. I embrace the pairs of opposites simultaneously. I learned from Wilhelm Wandt, who is the father of the scientific approach to psychology, the founder of it. 
And um, he, he said there was sequential contrast and simultaneous contrast in the brain. When you have sequential contrast, you have a causal system. You have a positive, and then later you have a negative. And there's a causal arrow of time and entropy between them, which ages you. And then there's a simultaneous contrast where you're actually present and realize the only way you can perceive something you're admiring is, is by comparing it to what you're despising. Both are present in the mind simultaneously. And the part you're despising is there to break your addiction to the part you're admiring. And the part you're admiring is to break your subdiction away from the thing that you're despising to show you that the synthesis of those is what love is. When you love somebody, you're gonna have things you like and dislike, hugs and slugs, come close, get away. You won't love them if you're trying to get a one-sided person and you won't find a one-sided person. I'm not a one-sided person. I'm not always nice. I have nice and mean, kind and cruel, positive, negative, happy, sad. I went through 4,628 traits in the Oxford Dictionary and found out I had every single one of them and none of them have gained or lost. They're just changing forms. So I gave up happiness. It made me too sad. What I did is I focused on the synthesis and synchronicity of those polarities simultaneously and gave myself permission to see them simultaneously and honor them. And that brings tears of gratitude because it allows me to see the hidden order, not the apparent chaos. If you study Claude Shannon's work on chaos and disorder and entropy, he calls entropy and disorder missing information. So if you're infatuated and you're in glee and joy and happy and elated, you're blind to the downsides that are there, you're overlooking. And if you're resentful, you're blind to the upsides because you have missing information. Think about somebody you're highly infatuated with. The first few weeks, you're blind to the downside. But after you stay with them for a year, what happens? You discover, oh my God, I, I, that's a fatal attraction. <laughs> it's not what I thought. Yeah. And that yeah. blindness and ignorance of one side made you feel joy temporarily and eventually a letdown because it didn't match the fantasy you got addicted to. I don't waste my time on that. I'm interested in knowing that everything has two sides. I look for both sides. I've become fully objectively aware of them. I'm grateful for that because then I get to see the hidden order because order means no missing information. The word mindfulness means nothing's missing. When I was in Nepal, I met with a Bon Lama, and the Bon Faith used to rule Tibet so many centuries ago. And in the process of doing it, we talked about one thing, nothing missing, nothing's missing. Mm. So many people are missing things. Every time you judge, you perceive missingness. Every time you love, you have fulfillment. The Gnostics called fulfillment pleroma, and they called the emptiness kanoma, and judgment left emptiness. And so when I judge something as positive or negative or happy or sad or whatever, and I don't see both sides, I have some emptiness and it's shallow and it's transient and it's fleeting. So I don't waste my time on the search for one-sided world. I embrace the two sides of life now. And the only way to get to the present is in the now. They know in memory and imagination or stored in the subconscious mind, all polarities and distortions. The moment you actually balance out the equation, the past disappears, the future disappears and the present emerges. In the present, there's nothing but love. All else was an illusion. So I don't look for one-sidedness. I gave that up at 37. That's how old I am. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's not a coincidence. Yeah, that's powerful. And I love that because, yeah, you kind of, that's like when I think about what you just shared, it's, it's so extraordinary because 
that's what a lot of people are seeking, searching for. You know, they're pursuing I, that which is unavailable. Yeah, I want happen. I hear it all the time. I want. I just people, want to be happy the, again. The saddest people I know are the people looking for happiness. Hmm. I don't waste my time on it. I I go for. I look for both sides. I'm grateful for both sides. When you love somebody, you're going to get both sides. You're never going to find a one-sided individual. You'll never become a one-sided individual. Never going to happen. Yeah. And people have, people, see, politics and religion loves to sell the opium, mm. the opium of the masses. Yeah. And they sell the ideal, the moral hypocrisy of one-sidedness, thinking that perfection is one-sidedness. Yeah. The perfection is the balance of opposites. It's the it's the the Tao. It's the yin and yang. Mm. That's the perfection, not one sidedness. So when people are going, oh, I'm not perfect yet. Well, I, I we're not all perfect yet. It's because they're living in the fantasy that one side is going to happen someday, and it's not. You can't. Heraclitus, fifth century BC, talked about the union of complementary opposites. Parmenides said the same thing. Anaxagoras, the same thing. Aristotle, the same thing. I could go down through 200, 300 philosophers and show where they've written about that exact same principle. C.S. Lewis, Samuel Beckett. I could go down the list of Nobel Prize winners. They all have demonstrated this principle. Even in quantum mechanics, the quantum entanglement of particle and antiparticle are inseparable and they're entangled simultaneously. So I don't waste my time on one-sidedness. I embrace the two sides of life. And they're simultaneous, so they really make up love. That's what love is. It's beautiful, and and I, I you know, I like just sitting here, um, you know, communicating with you. I just feel like you've just given me some sort of therapy session. <laughs> um, just in the last like twenty minutes, I feel like I'm in one of your um, workshops or, or seminars, um, and I just like just your explanation there of, um, you know to not chase happiness and to be have understand and appreciate that balance. And, um, and it's part of, you know, your human condition as well of, of who you are and people are always trying to run away from something. Um, and it's to embrace it, um, and to find that balance, you know? So, um, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, how you've made me feel, um, just by your explanation and how deep you went into that. Um, which is just, uh, I'm sure that other people, everyone who's listening is, is going to take a lot of value um, away from that as well. Um, so thank you for sharing that. So um, Dr. Martini, before we finish up, just, just one last question. Um, in terms of your own health, because obviously, you know, you've got to stay focused, you've got to stay healthy in order for you to serve and to, to give what you give um, and to be on that higher vibration um, and to also have mental clarity. Um, obviously, you've got to nurture yourself. You've got to be accountable for your own, you know, health and what you fuel yourself with. Um, tell us a little bit about um, how you take care of you in terms of you have a specific diet. How long did it take you to master, you know, what you eat or even, you know, how you fuel your mind, um, the conversations you have with people? Um, how protective are you over your environment? There's nothing to protect. That's your own perception. As Milton said, you can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of a heaven. You can make an enemy into a friend or a friend into an enemy. It's your choice of perceptions. So protection assumes that there's something more challenging than, than supportive. And that's just a ratio of perception. And the ratio of perception determines your physiology. I don't live to eat. 
I eat to live. I learned from Mahatma Gandhi when I was 18, reading his memoirs. I followed in his footsteps about documenting what I ate and what it did in my physiology. I kept records of it until I learned what seemed to work for me. It's not exactly the diet that everybody promotes. It's what works for me. Now, I keep a pretty intense schedule, seven days a week. I, I, I did 35 hours. Uh, for 35 years, I did four hours of sleep, and I kept going for 20 hours a day for 35 years. Now I sleep closer to the six hours and I'm 68 almost. And I still go seven days a week. So you don't, you don't have resistance in your physiology when you're doing highest priority what you love. But the second you're doing lower priority things, feeling you have to do things, got to do things, must do things, should do things, supposed to do things, have to do things. The cytokine ratios between the autonomics cause pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory imbalances and cause aging processes and entropy. The more present you are, the less entropy you have. So if you're doing what you love and you're in your executive center, you're not like to let impulses and instincts run your eating or your behavior. You're more likely to be moderate, consistent, rhythmic, and fuel your body with the highest priority things for performance. If, if, if a woman or a man has something extremely important coming up in the next week, they're gonna eat wisely for that week before. A woman knowing she's about to get in a wedding dress at a wedding day of her life, the week before she's like disciplined because she has meaning and purpose in her life. But the second she has no meaning and purpose and the wedding's done, she'll pig out over drink and everything else because that's over now she's back in the amygdala. But if you fill your day with deeply inspiring and meaningful things that make a difference, that's sustainable, create fair exchange, that remunerate you, doing what you love, you have a very high probability of incredible maintenance and discipline and mastery of your physiology. And you don't live to eat, you eat to live. And you prioritize your actions, you prioritize your associations who you hang out with, not because of judgment or making right or wrong, just prioritization because you can't be with everybody every day. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, and that gives uh, a lot of awareness to, you know, I think most people's lifestyles. Um, and especially when you say four hours sleep or six hours sleep, most people have to sleep eight, nine hours um, to feel like they've rested their body. I'm get, and I'm, I'm going to make the, the wise assumption that, you know, that's given your diet because, you know, your body needs more rest because it needs to process or it needs to recharge because you're not fueling yourself in, in the best way. When, when you're not inspired, it's natural for one to read more rest as an escape from your reality. When you're inspired, you have too many things to do. So I sleep friend, is a form of escapism as well. <laughs> yes, I have a friend who has 4,030 patents in his name. He's a very wealthy multi-billionaire. He donates 250 to $500 million a year to different educational systems. Amazing, inspired guy. He's exactly the same. When we first met each other, he said, you remind me of me when I was younger. I said, you remind me of me when I was older. And uh, he's an inspired guy. We were flying one time from Singapore into Hong Kong. We both happened to be on the same flight. He was behind me about five rows in the business section of a plane. And uh, everybody was out crashed. And both of us were on our computers working on what we love. And I looked around, I could see his light going. He puts his thumb up. He goes, we're on a mission. Let's go.
you're absolutely on a mission. You're still on that mission, doctor. <laughs> I'm on the mission. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Martini. it's been absolutely a pleasure to, to spend some time with you and, and to, to uh, soak in the, the wisdom and, and your knowledge. And I love how uh, you've quoted just, uh, just so many different philosophers and um, authors and um, people that you've learned from. Um, you're absolutely an inspiration to me. Um, hopefully, you know, our paths will cross um, sometime in the near future, um, maybe on stage one day uh, or at one of your workshops or seminars. Um, that would be a blessing um, and an honor. Um, but I really want to thank you so much for uh, your time. This time is, uh, you know, I think the most priceless commodity that, that we have, something we can't get back. Um, and uh, uh, I just appreciate um, everything that you've shared with us today. Uh, where can people find your work, um, your social media um, platforms? Um, just, tell us Dr. just drdmartini.com. Just drdmartini.com. And on there is all the other things, you know, access to the the YouTube, our podcast show, our, you know, programs we do, the Breakthrough Experience program, my signature programs, everything's on there. Just drdmartini.com. And you could spend the rest of your life on there because there's enough information on there to keep you busy for at least one life. <laughs> Absolutely. I've had a look at it and I can definitely see that. That's amazing. Um, Dr. Demartini, thank you so much for joining me on the Luke MindPower podcast uh, I look forward to, um, you know, maybe one day in the future, we'll do another interview. Um, and we'll see, we'll see where we're at. But you know what? Just, just quickly, please, what kind of advice? I've been doing this for, you know, my podcast has started in 2019 in September. Um, you know, this is something I'm really passionate about. I absolutely love doing podcast interviews um, and just speaking myself as well. Um, and, you know, one of my dreams is to be on stage in front of 20, 30,000 people. And I love to motivate. I know that you have something, you know, that you say that motivation doesn't work. Um, I believe it too. Motivation is like bathing. You need it every day. You need to get empowered and you need to feel that good energy. Um, but um, what kind of advice can you quickly give me um, in terms of moving forward in my life um, towards, you know, my highest self um, and being, you know, that uh, change agent in the world? Something that Mary Kay from Mary Kay Cosmetics told me many years ago. What's the highest priority action you can do each moment that helps you fulfill that aspiration and sticking to it? Mine turned out to be teach, research, and write. I've delegated everything else away. I don't do anything but teach, research, and write. Everything else is delegated. And I only do what I love doing and hold the vision of that outcome and be of such contribution that it's impossible for you not to fulfill it. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Martini. Thank you so much, doctor. It's a blessing. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. It's a blessing to use this platform to connect with you. If you would like to connect with me or learn more about how I can coach you to that next level of life, simply click the link below in the show notes. Also, join our private success community, The Dream Chasers, and surround yourself with gladiators who are saying yes to life and yes to their dreams. The link is also in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss a new episode and leave a review and rating on the Apple Podcast app. This really helps us out. 
If you don't already, follow me on Instagram. And remember, believe in yourself just a little bit more today. Never give up on your dreams. You don't need anyone's permission, just your own. I'll see you on the next episode.